we actually had an unexpected trip. I was expecting to be out on the Sunday evening. I'm trying to get all this straight now. I, I believe it was a week ago. Uh, maybe No, it was a little more than a week, two weeks ago. I was expecting to be out on a Sunday evening, uh, and some things came up family-wise, had to make a sudden trip. And so I appreciate Brother Frankovich Phil, preaching for us a couple of times in our absence, including last Sunday morning. I understand that he did a great job and God used him. And so that's always a blessing. And then uh, my son spoke on the Wednesday evening and Brother Coy Emmett on Sunday evening, uh, excuse me, the Sunday evening. And so I appreciate all those guys for stepping in and filling in the gap. And, but I, I've got to tell you, I've got to be real honest, it's good to be home again. It's good to be back in the pulpit and opening the Word of God with you all. I, I want to remi- warn you ahead of time. I know some of you, you know, keep an eye on the clock and all that kind of thing. A couple of the guys, I know Brother Troy and I think Brother Tommy also said that they finished early uh, at the times that they were preaching. Uh, so just want to warn you, that's not going to happen this morning. In fact, I'm thinking about taking the time that they didn't use. And, <laughs> no, we will try to get you out on time. How's that? I'm not going to make any promises beyond that. And quite frankly, I'm not even going to promise that. But we're going we're gonna to do the best that we can. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's open the Word of God, shall we? Isaiah chapter 6. We want to read the first eight verses. And I would ask you, if you would, please to stand with me out of reverence to the Word of God as we read beginning in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your goodness today. I thank you for... Uh, your word and for the power that it has to transform the way that we think, the way that we look at life, and indeed the way that we live our lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have your full will and way in each one of us. Lord, we thank you for the transforming power of your Holy Spirit, the fact that we've been renewed in him, in Jesus Christ, and by the blood of Christ we've been washed and cleansed and made into new creatures. And I pray for that one who may be here this morning who has not yet been made new, who is still living the life of the sin and the flesh and the way of the world. And, Lord, I pray that you would speak to those individuals and draw them to yourself. And I pray that your gospel would be presented clearly this morning so so that all of those who have not yet been born again might have the opportunity to be born again. Lord, I want to pray for your people as well. Uh, It's so easy for us to come and just do what we do, go through the motions, fulfill the ceremonies or whatever and and rush to get out of here. But, Lord, I pray that that would not be the case this morning, but rather that you would speak to us directly, that you would stir our souls, that you would take full charge of this service and do something in us that's not been done in a long, long time. Lord, I pray that you would freshen our zeal, 
our desire to know you and to be used of you, and that we might be more effective as we go out into this sin-distressed world. Lord, we ask for your power and your presence today. As your vessel, I ask for forgiveness of sins and ask that you would use me. And I ask that you speak to the hearts of those that hear. We thank you for these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. I will tell you as we get started this morning that I intentionally did not prepare a PowerPoint presentation uh, for this. We are going to be using quite a bit of Scripture. You know that I love to use the Scripture as we go through, and one of the primary reasons for using the PowerPoints is to is to have the Scripture there before you. I trust that you brought your Bibles with you this morning. How many of you brought your Bible? Can I see it? Now, if you've got it on your phone, you can hold that up as long as you're not watching the ball game, right? Uh, but uh, this is a church that believes in the Bible. Amen. It's a, a church that believes in the Word of God and, and the, the transforming power of that Word. And so I, I trust that you'll follow along to the best of your ability this morning. But I started to say I didn't prepare a, a PowerPoint today on purpose. And the reason is because the subject matter of the message is not such that you can illustrate it in visual form. It's not something that we can actually put up a representation of what Isaiah saw and without straying over into some very questionable areas. And besides the fact that you simply cannot catch an idea of the majesty of God that way. And so uh, we've chosen rather to approach this the old-fashioned way and just say you follow along in the Bible and let me preach the Word of God as he moves this morning, okay? I want to talk to you a message that I've entitled today, Simply Preparing for Fresh Service. The passage that we've read is a well-known passage. It's a passage that is known by most of you, perhaps, and you've probably heard more than one sermon uh, preached on this particular passage. Nevertheless, it is a passage that stirs our souls when we see what is taking place in the life of God's prophet Isaiah. Let me begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever wondered why we do what we do? Why do we come to church on Sunday morning? Why do we insist that you come back on Sunday night and on Wednesday night? And What's this whole thing about going out and talking to people about the gospel and, and all of the different obligations that we have as children of God, our service that we render to God? Why do we do those things? Do you ever find yourself on that spiritual hamster wheel? You know what I'm talking about, where you're always going but never getting anywhere. You're just running around in circles, as they say. Be honest. Does church ever seem dull? Has your Christian service reached the point of routine, perhaps even drudgery? We all get there. And if the truth be known, we spend far more time there than we ought to. Sometimes I think that's what draws people in droves to showy churches or emotionally driven charismatic sensationalism in worship surely there's more to serving god than either extreme by the extremes i'm referring to the dull boring dead orthodoxy or the other extreme of sensationalistic entertainment driven empty religious clubs surely there's more to serving god than either one of those now as brother terry prayed earlier this morning we're seeing extremism manifests in a lot of different areas on the political side of our society today. And obviously, let me just say this, and I'm not going to preach on that this morning, but I want you to know that God is in not either one of the extremes, all right? Uh, there, there's, no, uh, there's no pleasing God in that. We go back to the Word of God to see what God says. But having said that, I believe that the Word of God teaches us that true Christianity 
consists of an exciting and yet faithful relationship with the eternal God through intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. I've been praying for God to instill in us, at First Baptist Church of Webster, a new vision. I'm asking him to give us a new kind of zeal. I'm praying that he'll wake us up from whatever slumber has fallen upon us and we might realize that serving him and participating in his great mission is the most exciting and stable way to invest our lives. I believe that Isaiah and most in Israel at the time of our context here in Isaiah chapter 6 had reached the point of ho-hum routine in their service to God. Isaiah was already a prophet. He was already declaring God's truths of sin and judgment to the nation of Judah and to her kings. But something was missing. The spark, the passion, the zeal were just not what they should have been. Isaiah 6 is perhaps one of the best known passages of the book of Isaiah because of Isaiah's vision. Isaiah would go on to prophesy during the reigns of four of Judah's kings and would be used by God to pen the book of prophecy that bears his name, one of the major prophets and one of the longest books in the Bible. I believe the spark that started Isaiah's fire is found in the passage that we've read this morning. Furthermore, I believe that though we may not have the literal vision that Isaiah had, unless we see what Isaiah saw in our hearts and lives and our souls, we may be doomed to be trapped in the cycle of drudgery for the rest of our lives. I believe that God wants us to be fresh and that God himself wants to be fresh and exciting to us, his servants. He wants the service that we render to him to be thrilling. That can only happen when we begin preparing for fresh service by the pattern that's laid out for us in this particular passage. So look with me, if you would, please, in verse number 1. As we look at, first of all, if we want to have our passions stirred up, if we want to prepare for fresh service, how do we do that? The first step is removing distractions. Verse 1, the Bible says very simply, in the year that King Uzziah died. Rather simplistic statement of fact. It's a time setting for that which Isaiah is about to record. He's telling us when this took place, but I think there's probably a little bit more to it than that as you look into the rest of the context, and indeed as you go back in Isaiah, in fact, turn back with me, if you would please, to Isaiah, the first chapter, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The point being that Isaiah himself was prophesying, and he he makes mention of the fact that his prophecies, or the days of his prophecy, began during the reign, the earthly reign, of good King Uzziah. Now, I say it that way because Uzziah, by the way, excuse me, Uzziah is also called Azariah in the Scriptures in 2 Chronicles. He was one of the few relatively few good kings over Judah. And I use the term relative because he was one of relatively few and because his goodness itself was quite relative. Uh, It it depends on what you compare it to. But because of the desire that he had to at least be named or to, to follow the name of the Lord God, God blessed him with a long reign. He had been sitting as king over Judah for 52 years. 
one of the longest reigns of the history of the of the kings of Judah. He began to reign when he was 16 years of age. And Judah had prospered under him. In fact, if you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 15, 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 15, the Bible says, And he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks uh, to shoot arrows and great stones withal. And his name spread far abroad, and he was marvelously helped till he was strong. So it was known throughout the known world at that time, or at least that region, that Uzziah was a man who had been helped by God. Uh, The kingdom was prospering under his leadership. His dedication, however, to the Lord was not complete. He served the Lord, but not with a whole heart. We're not going to get into fully all of the sins of Uzziah. Uzziah, you may remember, was the king who eventually, being lifted up in pride, entered into uh, the temple and and presumed to burn incense to God, which was not his right or authority to do. And because of that, he was stricken uh, by God with leprosy to the day of his death. don't want to get into all of that in full detail this morning, other than just to say that his sin was rooted in pride. He became full of himself. Judah, under his reign, was reformed, but not revived. It was changed, but only on the outside. There was still a great sin problem that was dealt with, actually, by Isaiah in the first five chapters of the book. Judah, at the time of Isaiah chapter 6, was apathetic. She was a kingdom that was complacent about sin, about God, perhaps due in part to the political stability that they had experienced and certainly to the economic prosperity that they had enjoyed. In other words, things were going fine. And so as far as they were concerned, there was no great need for change. And I'm afraid, although I can't certainly prove it uh, from the Scriptures, but I'm afraid that the prophet had perhaps fallen at least partially into that same trap. Uh, He felt that, uh, Uzziah had things pretty well under control. But then there was a earth-shattering event that took place. The man Uzziah, the, the stable king of Judah, the one to whom all of the kingdom looked for deliverance and leadership, now all of a sudden he's gone. The death of Uzziah was a major event that I believe shook up Isaiah's focus and the focus of many within the kingdom of Judah. Now, let me remind you before I move on that even good things can be a distraction if we allow them to be. I've mentioned to you that Uzziah was a good man. He, he, he had the desire to serve God. He, he at least wanted to follow the name of the Lord and not worship the false gods, at least not openly. So he wanted to do right, but he was distracted by a lot of the, the ritualism or a lot of the, just the normal mundane practice of the day. In the life of Isaiah, we see that sometimes major events shake up our lives. You ever experienced that? We tend to, and pardon me for stopping preaching for a minute and start meddling a little bit, but do you ever notice, and perhaps you're more spiritual than I, and you do better at this than I do, but I've noticed that sometimes when things are going well, you know, I'm not having any major difficulties. It seems like there's enough money to, to pay the bills. And, you know, uh, health-wise, everything's pretty good, and the kids are doing well, and, and, and everything's kind of just going along swimmingly, as they used to say. I'm not real careful 
I have a tendency sometimes to just kind of sit back in the easy chair and say, things good. And forget to take time for God. And get distracted by the ease of the moment. And sometimes, now I'm not trying to say this morning that all the time this is what's going on, but sometimes God has a way of getting hold of my life and just kind of shaking me a little bit. (laughs) And saying, wake up. Come out of your stupor and realize that God is still on the throne. So sometimes major events shake up our lives, at least in part, so that we'll shift our focus away from Uzziah and put it more intensely on the Lord and his purpose. I remember, I remind you of what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where the Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the weight, uh, excuse me, the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. To illustrate the point, if I may, what did it take for Peter uh, the day that he was walking on the water? Now, this is a whole different sermon, and I'm not going to preach that this morning, but you remember Peter was walking on the water. Uh, Peter was the only man other than Jesus Christ that ever did that. But he was walking on the water, and he, he got distracted, and he began to sink. What did it take for him to get the victory over that distraction? He had to look to Jesus, didn't he? Look to Jesus and him alone. Jesus had to rebuke him for his lack of faith because Peter saw the wind boisterous in the waves and began to sink. All I'm saying is sometimes we've got to sink a little bit. <laughs> to get our attention back on the place where we need to be. We can sometimes have our sensitivity to God's direction increased by the removal, at least for time, of the distractions. God has a way of pruning distractions from our lives. Now listen, there are two ways that we can get rid of distractions. One is willingly. We can say, God, remove these things from me. I'm going to work on them. Uh, allow your Holy Spirit to work in me to show me what they are, and let's, let's get rid of those things. That's the best way. The other way is just to ignore them and let God do the pruning, right? And by the way, he will. And he has a way of taking those distractions out of our lives. So he can do that providentially. That is, God himself steps in and Uzziah dies. Or it may be intentionally as we come aside for a season of of full dedication to the Lord, where we begin to seek the Lord with all of our heart. What does Jeremiah 29 say? You remember? Jeremiah 29, verse 13, And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Jesus repeated the words, uh, a slightly variant of the, uh, of the way that Isaiah or Jeremiah had said it. Jesus said, Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Seek and you shall find. Right? Jesus said, You'll, You look for God, and when you look for God and you dedicate yourselves to searching for him, then he will appear. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, the Bible says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just say before moving on that this is, what I'm talking about here is, what, is the reason why we do things like youth camps. Why, why would we carry a bunch of rowdy teenagers off to another state for a week just so they could have fun? 
No. <laughs> now, we want them to have fun, but that's not what it's really about. What it's really about is getting rid of the distractions. You know? Uh, getting rid of the cell phones, getting rid of the, of the video games, getting rid of the television and the radio and all the other things that blare at them from all different sides and giving them a time of four or five days when they don't do anything other than hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God and go out and get some physical exercise, <laughs> right? But the point is to remove those distractions so the Spirit of God can speak to them. You and your life can at least ask God to take those distractions out of your way so that you can hear him. I think the first step to preparing for a fresh service to the Lord or a freshness in our service to the Lord is to allow the distraction to be removed. The second one, verses 1 to 3 in this text, what is the second step to freshening our zeal? The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twenty covered his face, with twenty covered his feet, and with twenty did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I think the second step, and this is probably the most important step, is not new to those of you who have sat here under the preaching of the word of God for some time, we may be new to some of you, but the second step is this. You must see God as he really is. So the first step is removing distractions. The second step is seeing God as he really is. Now, not as, he, as we fabricate him in our hearts and minds. You understand, folks, that we're living in a society today that builds gods after their own image. We're living in a world, a culture, in which people essentially have what I call Walmart Christianity. Or even, uh, which, one, which fast food place is it? Burger King? Have it your way? Right? Uh, can I remind you, believers, you don't decide how God is based on what you like. That's not how... Uh, his character is set. God's character is divine. It, it is holy. It is perfect. It is righteous. It is uh, def- the definition of goodness. And I don't understand where we get off coming away from things and saying, well, you know, I don't like that because I just don't think God's that way. Well, if God says he's that way, who asked you? Now, pardon me for saying so, but listen, folks. God is God. And we will only serve God effectively and with excitement when we recognize who he really is. So how does Isaiah see him in this passage? We first of all see that Isaiah Isaiah sees him as sovereign king. He's seated upon the throne. He is the one who rules in the affairs of men and nations. He is the one who controls the master plan of the universe and of mankind in particular. In other words, the real king was not Uzziah, it was God. This was part of the problem with Israel. They kept focusing on the man on the throne instead of God behind the man. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me and where is the place of my rest? Who are we to think that we can contain God? God is the mighty God. He is the ruling God, the sovereign God of the universe. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, folks, listen, we know this here, but I wonder sometimes if we know it here. Who is this God whom we serve? He's not just one of many. He is the one and only. The almighty God, the sovereign king in my life and in the world in general. Only as God is seen as the one with the right to rule, the one with the right to direct and control our lives, will the impact of his reign be noticeable in us and through us before the rest of the world. Can I be real honest with you? Perhaps bluntly honest. You know why it is a lot of times that the world doesn't believe in the Christ that we preach? Because we don't allow him to reign in our own lives. We want to control our own decisions. We want to go our own way. We want to make those decisions for ourselves instead of giving them to God. And I've got, to, I've got to tell you, folks, that as long as you're serving God that way, you're going to be on a hamster wheel. You're just going to go round and round. Never really going to get anywhere. God's authority to reign, by the way, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, encompasses his judgment on sin. I have to toss that in here because there may be someone here this morning that has not even recognized the right of God to call you to account. The Bible tells us very plainly that the wages of sin is death, folks. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of these days, every person in this room is going to stand before God and is going to give an account of themselves, either as the son of God who gives account for his service or as an alien from the family of God who gives account for his sin. Hebrews tells us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. God is the sovereign Lord, or the sovereign King, but he also sees him here as the exalted Lord. I love this. He, he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Can I cut to the chase? Let's, let's stop trying to bring God down to our level. Let's try, listen, let's stop trying to make him understandable. There are certain things about God that he explains to us or reveals to us about himself. There are other things that are so big that if we thought we could get our heads around them, our, our heads would literally explode. <laughs> we are the finite creature. We serve the exalted Lord. He is the high one. He is the exalted one. And we need to lift him up in our service. Our, our service becomes a drudgery, folks, because we're doing it for other reasons and not because we're serving the high king. Psalm 46 and verse 10. The Bible says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 108 and verse 5. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. And thy glory above all the earth. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. I love that phrase. The high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of contrite and humble spirit. 
revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Our Lord is the exalted Lord. There are probably as many definitions of worship today as there are churches in Webster. Each one seeks to do that which is right in his own eyes and follow his or her own way of worship. And sometimes we get offended because the worship is not what I want. But may I remind you that true worship involves lifting him up, not just in word, but in deed. That we exalt Him. Uh, Can I remind you that God is not impressed with the words of our song if He's not exalted in our lives and in our hearts? You can sing great as the Lord all day long, but if you're not showing it with your life, God doesn't believe you. And by the way, you don't believe it yourself. Now, I'm not trying to be mean, folks, but if it's coming across that way, well, so be it. Now, I trust that this is led of the Holy Spirit, but I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. This people, Jesus said, draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, where did he get an idea like that? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Isaiah. You know Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah 29, verse 13. Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. In other words, they were making up the way that they would serve God. Taught by the precept of men, rather than by the command and the direction of God himself. So worship involves lifting him up in deed, not just in word, and humbling myself before him. Can I remind you? This is an uncomfortable thought, folks, but you need to understand this. If you would truly worship God, you need to understand going in that real worship is an uncomfortable experience. It's not a carnal thing where we get all twitterpated. I know, that's a Disney word, right? But it's not a Bible word. It's not a carnal experience. Where we, where we go through something and it makes, it makes us feel so good that we just kind of float through the rest of the week. Now listen, sometimes being in the presence of God does that. But most of the time, worship is a humiliating experience. Because it brings me down to where I'm supposed to be. In the presence of the only one who has the right to be exalted. In my life and in yours. So worship involves humbling oneself before him. And we're going to see a little bit more about this in a minute. But Isaiah chapter 2 verse 11 says this. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. And the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. James chapter 4 verse 6 says it this way. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And. He shall lift you up. I want you to note as we move on very quickly that Isaiah saw, as he saw God as he really was, 
he saw or sensed his overwhelming presence. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And notice this. Seems an odd phrase. Why, why, why was this thrown in there? He's high and he's lifted up. And Isaiah said his train filled the temple. That is the tails of his robes, if you will. Filled the temple. I believe that Isaiah was emphasizing there the overwhelming presence of God. That no longer is just the mercy seat and the propitiatory, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant. No longer is that the important thing. No longer is the candelabra that's there or the table of the showbread or, or the golden altar or, or any of the other furnishings of the temple. It's not important now what the priests are doing there. What's important now is that God is there. His presence fills the entire place. He takes over. He fills up. And can I say that's what we need to get to, the point that we need to get to in our lives? That God literally fills the temple of our heart. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8. This is future. It's talking about the time uh, of the tribulation and what's going on in heaven. In the meantime, in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8, the Bible says the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God, from his power. No man was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. The visible presence of God always in the scripture is, a, is an awesome thing. It's a, it's a fearful thing. It's, it's a thing that causes those who come into his presence to be consumed by his majesty. We're talking here about a kind of worship that consumes all of my attention, all of my desire, all of my effort. In other words, we're talking about a Deuteronomy chapter 6 type of dedication. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, the Bible says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. With all thy might. I dare say that there are very few people in this room this morning that couldn't quote that verse verbatim. But I wonder, speaking from my own personal experience, how often does that verse really become the theme of my life? So that every part of my being is focused on worshiping and serving Him. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul? <laughs> it kind of makes me laugh. What does God require of Israel? Oh, nothing but everything. Those requirements have not changed. Now, folks, listen, we're, we're living, we're serving God on this side of the cross, and therefore Christ has wrought a work in us in redeeming us and, and forgiving us of our sin and adopting us into his family and engrafting into us the divine nature. He's, he's done a miraculous work through the new birth to make us capable of living lives that serve him. But the idea of serving him all the time with all of our attention and all of our focus has not changed. 
Too many times we fall into the trap, a worldly trap, of focusing on Christ on Sunday morning, and then the rest of the week he's a niggling thought at the back of our minds as we go about our normal business. And I'm trying to tell you this morning that if they fall into that trap, then serving God is nothing, never going to be anything but just a drudgery to you, than just routine. God doesn't want anything from you but everything. You're all. He wants to consume all of your attention, all of your desire, all of your effort. Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Jesus was repeating the command from Deuteronomy, reminding those who had asked the question, what's the first and great commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is the overwhelming presence of God is a part of who he really is. Let me wrap it up this morning. I'm not going to get to the final part of the message. Does that surprise you? In his vision of God, Isaiah saw, well, let me just read it to you, verse 30, uh, verse 3. This is talking about the seraphims. Verse 3 says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. As we see God as he is, not only do we see him as sovereign king and exalted Lord and overwhelming presence, but I've got to tell you this morning that you've not seen God until you see holy. All other virtues and character traits of our thrice holy God are, are permeated by His holiness. We love to speak of the love of God, and we love to speak of the grace of God, and we love to speak of the mercy of God, and those are wonderful sermon topics. But I've got to tell you, I can't say those things adequately and properly unless I refer to them as the holy love of God and the holy grace of God and the holy mercy of God. Of God. His love is nothing but holy love. His grace is nothing but holy grace. His mercy, holy mercy. Those things without holiness are meaningless, they're empty and vain. God defines and epitomizes holiness in his person. So that he tells us in the New Testament to those who are his people, therefore be ye holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. So don't give me this business of so holy that you're no earthly good or whatever the, you know, that old expression is. Listen, folks, until you're as holy as God is, you're not there yet. Now, thankfully, His Spirit works in us to produce that holiness in us. spoke to you a couple of weeks ago about the reasons for godliness or holiness, and uh, certainly that continues to hold true. What I'm trying to tell you here is that seeing God that way allows me to get a proper perspective on myself. And if God's willing, then next week I'll talk to you about what that proper perspective is. Okay? But for now, I think we got a good start. I, I'm concerned, folks. I'm, I'm praying that our Christianity would become more than just something we do. 
just come to church on Sunday and sing a few songs and have some preaching and somebody say amen and say it quickly so I can go home or go be Methodist to the restaurant. Or, you know, uh, and that, that becomes the, the cycle of our Christianity. And I'm trying to tell you, and I think the Scripture bears it out over and over again, that there's a whole lot more to serving God than that. Serving God is not meant to be a drudgery. It's not meant to be a ho-hum existence. That's what the world gives us. But nor is it meant to be something that's some kind of a false euphoria that's generated by the carnal side of our nature. What it's meant to be is a, a, a purpose dedication, purposeful dedication to the God that Isaiah saw. And I trust this morning, at least to some degree, the Holy Spirit has showed to you as we looked at these words. What kind of God do you serve? You ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, your excitement level in serving God is directly linked to how big a God you have? He's that little bitty God that fixing your box that you've defined as this is what I think God ought to be and this is what I think he ought to expect of me and all of that, then listen, your wheel goes round and round. Never gets anywhere. But when you see that God is great, big, wonderful, majestic, sovereign Lord of the universe who has a purpose for you and for me, they didn't put you here by accident. You've got a reason that you exist and why you're here. You begin to tap into that reason. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. You can't help but get excited. The zeal, zeal becomes a palpable thing when God's Holy Spirit begins to do the work in us that he wants to do if we'll just let him. I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, to bow your heads with me this morning. Close your eyes. Stand, if you will. We're going to go into a brief invitation time. I don't know what the Lord is doing in your heart and life. I believe the message has been given by God this morning, and I think that there's something that he wants to do in every one of us. I can help think that there may be someone here this morning who's never met Jesus Christ. You've heard about him, but you don't know him. If that's the case, I'd love to invite you to come as we begin to sing in just a moment. Take my hand and say, Pastor, I need to be saved. We've got people that will take the Bible and show you how you can be born again, how you can be transformed, how you can know him. But Christian, the majority of the message has been for us, for you. Have you, have you seen that God? Is he real? Are you willing to give him all of yourself? That's the invitation this morning, and the altars will be open. Heavenly Father, will you take the word as it's gone forth, cause it to accomplish its purpose in each and every heart and life. We'll be careful to give you the praise for what